podcast listeners. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Montague Reporter podcast. This week we saw serious flooding in our region. It was particularly severe in Miller's Falls, which received almost six inches of rain in 24 hours from July 17th to July 18th. Mike and I recently had a guest author on the podcast to talk about the history of flooding in our region and the potential for serious floods moving forward. This discussion is with Josh Shanley, a firefighter and emergency preparedness specialist and author of the book Connecticut River Valley Flood of 1936. That flood, which is among the worst floods in our region's memory, caused displacement, deaths, and millions of dollars of damage throughout our valley. It also influenced infrastructure decisions in the aftermath. All right, here's the show. For someone who's never heard about the flood of 1936, can you give like a quick overview of what it was and why it was important? Yeah, so in New England, there's a long history of floods, you know, going back. It's an agriculture community. During the 1800s, the river would rise and the river would fall and the farmers would just sort of move back and forth. As the agriculture started to move out and the industry started to move in, the industrialists wanted to control the river more commodify the rivers, the, the term they used. And when the river rose, it really became inconvenient. Towns and villages like Turner's and Montague and Greenfield were built primarily as industrial towns. And when the rivers came up and the tributaries, it really started to make an impact on the industry and the people that were um, living close by. You know, you look at a town like Turner's, it was purpose built. So you have the, the mills, and the homes are built to make it convenient so people can get to work. As that started to change and beginning probably most notably around 1927 with the big flood, which made a bigger impact in uh, Vermont, but also down in northern Massachusetts. And then things started to transition. 1936, though, was a, a watershed moment because what happened in, during this period of uh, about two weeks over by the time it was done there was a, a spring freshet, which is a normal event. The, the winter starts to uh, recede, the temperatures rose, and there was a, a storm event, precipitation event, a, a heavy rain. And because the ground was frozen and covered with snowfall, the water had no place else to go except into the river, into the tributaries, and then the Connecticut River started to rise. All that was pretty much normal. What happened, though, in the immediate aftermath, that, the first event started around March 9th. And then around March 18, March 19, a secondary storm moved in. And that's when things went from bad to worse. And the, the river hadn't had a chance to lower, which would be normal. And we had a secondary event that turned out to be worse than the first. So rain upon floodwaters, and that's where things really started to wreak havoc all up and down the Connecticut River Valley. And I think I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't mention the fact that this was not only a Connecticut River event. This was all across the East Coast, as far north as Maine, down to Virginia, out to Ohio. There was devastation all over the East Coast area. I just focused on the Connecticut River for this case. And it's interesting, the book goes from north to south, and you talk about the different impacts from like Vermont and New Hampshire all the way down to Connecticut. Yeah, I, I had to, uh, going back and forth with the publisher, trying to figure out how to arrange this. And we decided geographically was probably the most uh, logical way or a logical way that everything was happening at the same time over this period of about 10 days. So yeah, that seemed to be one good way to organize the, all the stories. 
And then, of course, rivers being what they are, you then have to take some some side tracks up the up the different tributary rivers. Yeah, the tributaries were actually interesting, especially in your area with the Deerfield and the Millers in particular, just north in Vermont. There were a couple interesting stories too, and, and all the tributaries have their own stories. The Chicopee is also very interesting because that was more far along in their industrialization, so it was a arguably more damaged because there was more industry, more investment down in that area. I think my favorite chapter or the most dramatic read for me was about Vernon, Vermont. Can you give an overview of the high drama that took place there? Yeah, so Vernon was one of these huge, is one of these huge uh, dams that was built on the Connecticut River. And again, you think about what was going on. I'll, I'll, I'll zoom out for just a second and realize that this was, you know, the middle of the Depression. P- times were hard. It was cold and this dam was built. You, you know, villages were built to put this dam up over a period of years. It was a major project from the from the New Deal. So it was up. But what happened was that they realized that if this dam was to fail, you didn't need need an engineering degree to figure out that there was going to be complete devastation downstream. So as I mentioned, you know, when it started on March 9th, that was the status quo. But as it continued on, and especially as the secondary storm moved in, people started to realize that this was really an, an unprecedented event at the time. And what ended up happening was reporters had time to get up to that area. So that's why we have such a wealth of um, photos. So this Contact Magazine journal really goes through the story about what it t- took for those men to keep that station not only intact, but operating. They saw their role maintaining the electrical power grid at that point for what it, what it was. They took that as a serious mission. So they were trying to keep the turbines spinning, keep the electricity going, but also you know not get killed in the process. And it was really... they. Were, they were hanging lines across the river and, and, and really putting their lives at risk. Um, there are interviews in the, in the WGBY documentary of workers from that plant at that time, and it is, it is chilling. But what the, the moment came, March 19th and March 20, where the state police, Mass State Police, were maintaining contact with, um, with the dam. And at one point overnight, the 19th into the 20th, they lost contact. And MSP put out a notice that the dam had failed because they, when they lost contact, they thought the worst case had happened. The dam had given way and they gave an evacuation order. Which was all persons in the Connecticut Valley move out at once. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And and you think about it now, I mean, like what were people thinking? What did they do? Where were they going to go? I mean, it was, I mean, that was the order. So yeah, so I, I wasn't able to really find any detail in terms of what happened in the aftermath of that, but that was the order given, as Mike said. And as it happened, they were wrong. Uh, state police were wrong. Um, the dam did not fail. It held, amazingly. So that was the story. That was probably the most compelling moment on that, on that, on the major river, um, as far as the dams go. But there was a lot of drama on the Deerfield as well, and and the Millers, frankly. I mean, that whole area was really. Uh, center of the storm it held because people people held it it wasn't just a structure this was this was a you know an active battle Uh, including people coming in uh, you know 25 men from the keen american legion post people are just sending 
you know, labor, you know, into, into this, this fight all up and down the watershed. Uh, the, this book does an amazing job of kind of capturing and cataloging that aspect of this event. It was a battle. So one thing that surprised me in the book that I, I guess I just like hadn't put it together previously, it was the major role that dams play in preventing floods on the Connecticut River. You kind of alluded to this earlier, but can you talk about a few examples of this in the book? Hydropower is, has always been controversial and it, it, it seems to be controversial again now, nowadays, especially along, along the Connecticut River. You know, I, I try not to get too political or take a position one way or the other. The, the facts are that this was a period where the Connecticut River was being commodified. They were building dams across it. And the, the idea was to initially was for um, flood control purposes. On the tributaries, the Connecticut or the uh, Deerfield in particular was used. The dams that were built there were for flood control, but also with an express purpose of developing hydropower and distributing electricity. This was a little later into the 1920s, 1930s. So the, depending on who built the dam and when, they were either, in some cases, exclusively for flood control and later on for flood and hydro. There are plenty of dams along the Connecticut that are not delivering um, hydropower. The tributaries early on were built um, for direct water power, uh, similar to the canals. They were just turning turbines in wheels so mills could build goods, you know, uh, weave cotton and that kind of thing. Here in Turner's, we had both happen. You know, the, the first canal they dug um, was for hydromechanical. And then with the advent of hydroelectric, they started putting turbines into those mills and then decided to, you know, extend the canal down and build, build Cabot Station, the, the bigger one. Yeah, that, that canal is actually interesting. It's got a long history, first being built, you know, as a transport canal with, with locks so they could get goods up and down the Connecticut around the shallows and the falls and then converted to a power canal and then upgraded yet again with Cabot and all that. And then there's some other history with that canal where they actually were considering using it as a canal or building it out as a canal to get from Boston to the Hoosick Tunnel and out to the Erie at one point. So um, for such a short period of time, there, there was a lot of activity in there. Totally. Yeah, we're, we're at this little vertex uh, geographically, and there's all of these uh, alternate paths of history that didn't happen at Turner's. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Can you talk about some more of the impacts on Montague and its villages? Montague is interesting because it was just such a small hub, but so much damage all at once. You know, with the three rivers coming together, the, that was one of the, f- I believe it, in, it was the first bridges to go in 1936, first the um, the trolley bridge. There were three bridges going across um, uh, really close together. I think in the book I have that postcard um, with the three bridges. It's almost an aerial view. I don't know how they did it. It's like a hand-drawn aerial view or an old-style photo of three bridges running parallel in close proximity to one another. And the um, trolley bridge and then a rail bridge and then the Montague City Bridge, which was this huge... Um, wooden structure built in 1870 and it was 770 feet long and it was actually a double-decker bridge where they had trains going across on 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 the top level I believe and then cars and walking traffic and horses and wagons going across on the lower level and all these were these were businesses they were you know they were built um, as toll bridges and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but just this huge structure the Montague City Bridge the big bridge 
this happened to be the fifth bridge built at this particular location. And this is in the area like where, right where the chief side bridge is currently, you know, um, going across and um, somewhere. Is it the Pierce Bridge now somewhere around yep. there? Yeah, yeah, that's yep. the name of it. The General Pierce yeah. Bridge. So it's all in that in that same area that's still there. But the Montague City Bridge was bridge number five built by 1870. So this was this was no uh, no surprise that the bridges were getting washed away. That's just what happened. Mm-hmm. The when the Montague City Bridge got washed out, however, in this case it got floated downstream, and the way all the reports I read describe it in torpedo-like fashion, did some damage to one of the uh, railroad bridges um, downstream from Deerfield, took out two or three spans, but um, they ended up repairing that ultimately, but just shattered the Sunderland Bridge at that point, a couple miles down. Mm -hmm. The Sunderland Bridge had been destroyed 10 times (laughs) since they were first built going back into like the 1600s. So again, this was not any any big surprise for people that lived in these areas. It was just like, oh, I've got to build another bridge. So they did. That's what That was just the nature of things. You know, they're up and down the Connecticut River and all the tributaries. They were like, they were. that's just what happened. They built bridges. The, the floods came in the spring. The bridges got washed down and destroyed somehow, and they just rebuilt them. There must have been so much. I mean, you know, we think about the floods as just a volume of water moving through everything, but, you know, so much other stuff being swept downstream the whole way too. Yeah. And that's what would happen. You know, the debris would build up and this would be in some cases like the Sunderland bridge getting, you know, getting torpedoed by the Montague city bridge. That was a sudden event, but you had other bridges that, you know, where the debris trees and ice chunks would just build up and shove them off their foundations and, and their piers. And, and then they would go. And then you had other cases where people where that would would build up. And we mentioned dynamite, you know, as being an option that they were considering at that point. Uh, Another another case I came across in the research was a tributary to the Deerfield uh, up in Colerain. Yeah, the North River. The North River. Thank you. Where they were, the the, the debris was building up into um, behind the bridges and flooding out the, the areas behind it, upstream of it. So I don't know if this was a regular practice or someone just came up with this idea, but they decided that they were going to burn the bridge off the foundation. And I guess the idea was that if the bridge is burned, it would give way and release the flood and all the debris and stop the flooding. Well, what happened was that they burned the bridge in this one case and it caught on fire. It finally um, was released from its foundation along with all the flood water, the ice chunks and the tree debris. And it floated down a fire and, and headed towards one of the Deerfield power plants. And there's a story in this contact journal where they were having a similar battle, you know, trying to keep the, the, the dam protected, electricity flowing. And uh, workers looked upstream and sure enough, coming around the bend was a, a flaming covered bridge, uh, like a torpedo coming at them. And, and they decided that was a, a good time to abandon ship. Wow. Josh, what? draws you to emergencies? Uh, well, probably something that happened to me when I was young. I don't know. <laughs> I was, I've been doing this work uh, for more than 30 years. I've been a firefighter paramedic for over 30 years now. Um, I'm currently working uh, for the city of Northampton. I've been fortunate enough to um, serve there for 13 years. 
I was in Amherst for 12 years before that. And then I, I grew up in New York City and I started uh, there. So I've been just finding this area. Uh, I have a real passion for emergency services on the response side. But maybe as I get older and I, I ended up trending towards emergency management, doing a lot of planning and uh, we facilitate a lot of exercises and I do um, you know, just a lot of scenario-based planning. And it was through this process, working in Northampton and dealing with the Connecticut River and the Mill River, um, just like every other small community up and down the uh, Connecticut, I discovered this history. And, and we have this infrastructure in Northampton, as many of the other communities do, that was built in the aftermath of this storm in particular, 1936, and then the hurricane of 38. And what I discovered during this process of writing this book was that these were New Deal projects. They were they were built and then they were largely not maintained. So there are there are really scary issues in in my opinion that a lot of people are aware of, but most people just are not. And my concern and what this ended up turning into this project for me was, you know, using history as a mirror to look forward um, and start looking at the the impacts that we might be facing with future flooding and climate change. So I know that was kind of a, a meandering answer to your your question, but the more I get into this, the more I discover that there's more to you know invest in in different ways to look at it. You know, historically in emergency management, we look um, backwards to plan for um, future events, but that's really not going to be applicable going forward with climate change, and it, it, it's it's um it's it's disconcerting. So you, you said that most of the infrastructure along the river hasn't really been updated since the 1950s. And I know there's a big push to fund infrastructure at the federal level. I'm, I'm wondering like what, what you would like policymakers to know about preparing for the next flood. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to speak to the Mass State Senate um, on this issue in particular. Um, full disclosure, my cousin is a state senator, uh, Joe Comerford. So uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was I was honored to be invited and to speak. I, I talked about these things in particular, you know, especially along the Connecticut River and Western Mass in general. And I'm looking forward to seeing what actually comes out of federal level infrastructure upgrades. I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm more optimistic now than I was last year at this time, but how it actually rolls out is going to be interesting. It, it needs to be looking forward. It needs to be holistic and sustainable and comprehensive and all that. The, the issue is that there's no cookie cutter solution. So each project needs to be really thought through and then dealt with the engineering, deal with the politics. The politics around flooding are complicated and there's a, a short section in the book about it. But essentially what happens is that when you look at the network of flood protection infrastructure that's built, it goes up into New Hampshire and Vermont. Those systems are built to protect Massachusetts and Connecticut, you know, and they're sprawling away from the Connecticut River. They're actually far from the tributaries in many cases. They're very expensive. So the politics around this issue become really cumbersome, really fast. Um, when you build a big dam, there are a lot of interests in, in play. I know that 
I, I don't follow all that closely, but you know, the work of the Connecticut River Conservancy, they, they're very invested in terms of you know, what is going to happen as these big dams are going for relicensing. And they have points, you know, I, I understand and, and, and I'm empathetic and I get it. I, I wish I had an answer for it. I think that anything is going to be better than doing nothing at this point. If they bring the stakeholder partners together and they look at this issue comprehensively and holistically, any effort is going to be better than just letting it fail. The systems are, are sprawling and, and um, just have not been maintained. So it's complex, it's expensive, and it is really cumbersome to sort of negotiate. Josh, where can people get a copy of your book? Well, I was surprised to find you could get a Kindle copy. I had to go buy my own Kindle copy on Amazon. Go figure. They didn't tell me that. I was happily surprised. I guess what they say is anywhere you can buy books. I think it's being sold locally. Um, Amazon, of course. So it's it's pretty widely available. I was so lucky to, to fall in with Arcadian History Press. I mean, they, they've been amazingly supportive and in, in helping me get the word out and frankly, just publishing this thing. So um, they've been amazing. Um, you can go to their website as well. And also, I've been writing in support of this. You know, it's funny, if I had to write this book again, it would probably be twice the size because my research has continued. And so I write at a blog, uh, newenglandfloods.org, and there's links to that. And and I'm I'm updating that all the time with kind of latest things I'm finding. And that on that uh, blog, on that website, I tend to look a little more forward. So the subtitle to that blog is What's Past is Prologue you know, looking it forward, using history as a lens to look forward. So we'll include a link to your your blog in the show notes for the podcast. Some of the people listening to this episode will have found it, if all goes well, from an article in, in the forthcoming edition of the Montague Reporter, uh, where we'll also run some of these these photos with it. Um, it's, a, it's a really tremendous book. Um, thanks for you know, I, I just as someone who lives in, in this area, I mean, thanks for writing this. This is a great resource for, for us all. And yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, oh, Josh. thanks, Mike. And thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I, I'm glad that we can talk about it. And I, I think the important thing is to, you know, learn from this and, and to try to make good decisions going forward that are going to make the future better.